0: So should
1: we start? Let's do it.
0: Welcome to The Green Majority, Canada's longest-running environmental news hour on CIUT 89.5 FM or your local community radio station. And today we have an interview with Sam Anderson, founder of Carbon Graph, helping companies reduce their carbon emissions. And we're going to do uh, international climate news. And Lauren is going to start us off talking about Um, the problem of loss and damage. This is rich companies, rich countries needing to provide uh, financing for countries that are already being physically deteriorated by climate change. And I am David Franklin Erwin Hostetter for The Hour.
2: For The Hour, I'm Stefan Christian Erwin Hostetter. After The Hour, who knows?
1: I was going to try to think of a fun name, but I couldn't. My name's Lauren Elizabeth Kortlatour, and it will be my name for this hour and then most hours after that.
0: You're hearing the voice of Hans Dieter Betz, the author of The Greek Magical Papyrus. So, Lauren, loss and damage.
1: Yeah, so this was something that that I was... That I kind of committed to talking about last week, because for a brief moment, it was like, hey, we might have like something kind of like fun and positive to talk about. As usual, things that once seemed positive seem less exciting, even just a week out. Anyway, sorry. Sorry. To re-explain loss and damage. So it's like, you've basically got like three forms of climate finance. You've got mitigation, which is like finance to sort of like bring down emissions. So like investing in, in clean energy solutions, for instance solar panels wind wind energy you've got um adaptation finance which is like helping communities prepare for dangers that are kind of like already locked in like building a seawall for instance um and then you've got loss and damage which is the third kind and the kind that's like kind of the most contentious um and that's basically to pay for like like you said like physical damage and loss from climate change that is like unavoidable already happening and primarily in in the global south though though in certain cases it's like you know how like sometimes you hear arguments that like there is a there's like you've got the first world second world third world and then you've got fourth world and that's like third world conditions within technically a first world country so like what you see on in certain like northern communities in so called Canada stuff like that anyway loss and damage is an issue both internationally and and domestically to a degree anyway um, loss and damage has been talked about at the international level within like COP spaces for like decades now. Um, particularly through something called the Warsaw Mechanism and through the Santiago Dialogues that came out of Chile a few years ago and now most recently um, out of uh, the Glasgow, is it called the Glasgow Dialogues, the Glasgow negotiations, the Glasgow something out of Glasgow from this past year at COP. Um, And the fact that like we have these new Glasgow dialogues happening is theoretically an exciting thing because it means that like it's, it's finally getting on the agenda within COP spaces, or we were hoping it would get on the agenda in COP spaces. And then a couple of weeks ago, Guibo started talking about loss and damage in, in a more exciting way. Um, Which is something that people were kind of hoping for from him, because we know he used to be involved in Greenpeace, used to be involved in Equitair. He's supposed to be like the he's supposed to be the environment climate change minister who's like of the people, by the people, for the people kind of thing. Right. So a couple of weeks ago, he made this statement that people kind of jumped on and started getting really excited about because he was talking about how it's like, yes, like we're going to start to push on loss and damage but um, emphasized that he wanted to start talking about it, not so much within the capacity of like loss and damage and those formal international kind of like terms, but within like um, the context of how does he, how does he say, there's a quote here. I think we have to try to shift the conversation away from that meaning loss and damage towards a new way of doing international development. And I think we can shift the conversation away from liabilities to this. I think maybe that's the room to have the conversation we have to have. And he said that because in the past global North countries have been really hesitant to commit any formal funding to loss and damage because the fear is that it opens up these global North countries to, to like liabilities and questions of like legal culpability. Um, so anyway, Gibo made this statement. People got kind of excited about it. It was like, okay, Canada's actually going to start to lead on loss and damage. And that's really exciting. That remains to be seen. That still could be the case. But what we do know is that the last week or two um, have uh, there have been a series of meetings taking place in Bonn, Germany called the Intercessionals. And basically there are these meetings that happen at that midway point between, between cops. So we're about six months past Glasgow. We're about six months um, before COP27 in in Egypt and Sharm El Sheikh, so these bond intercessions are happening. Loss and damage has been a point of discussion, but it has not been on the formal agenda. Which means that it's being talked about, but no formal decisions have been made. And as of yet, theoretically, it could get it. it this this decision could could change as of tomorrow meaning Thursday, June 16th, which is the day before people will hear this. It, it could be getting on the formal COP agenda for COP27 in Sharm el-Sheikh, Egypt, but it isn't yet, and people are pushing for that. Basically, last week when I brought this up, I was hoping we would have something exciting to tell people. We don't really have anything different to tell people because basically we're in the same position we've always been in. Even with all of these new formal dialogues, the Glasgow dialogues or whatever, loss and damage, at least at the international level, amongst global North countries continues to be just like a fun conversation piece. And we we still don't have any formal commitments financially to, to loss and damage financing from global North countries, which is disappointing to say the least, especially because you have somebody like Gibo who should be on side. And now um, we have... Out of Germany, there's a new climate envoy for Germany. Her name is Jennifer Morgan, and she used to be with Greenpeace as well for years and years and years and was like a really big, exciting person in COP spaces as well. So I think people were hoping for a little bit more to come out of Bonn, and I think people are really sort of anticipating that if global North countries wanted to get their stuff together, they could do so. Um, in, in Egypt, especially with Gibo and now Jennifer Morgan kind of in these, in these formal negotiating spaces, um, on behalf of countries. Anyway, that was convoluted when I'm, when really at the end of the day, the point I'm making is the global North still isn't, isn't doing enough on, on loss and damage. And that's disappointing, but maybe next week we'll have better news. (laughs) Well, I theoretically feel like- yes if, at least at least if it gets on the formal agenda for cop that means like you could be getting some decisions being made because as of right now it's still just like i've i've seen it referred to as like uh as like a talk shop space basically
2: yeah and this is incredibly important a because there's been so much loss and damage already but b because this is only going to get worse and the longer the global north countries refuse to do this the higher the bill will be as we'll see in a couple seconds when Dave begins the news, the world is not getting less destructive due to climate change. Like climate change is not just taking a break right now so we can figure out our loss and damage stuff before it causes more loss and damage. It is getting to it. And so, you know, I, I, I worry that by the time that they even begin these conversations to get to them, which is honestly, you know, hopefully this year, but really should not hold our breaths that the the amount of money will continue to increase. And that, like, are we ever going to catch up to the amount of money that is owed to these countries? Historically, you know, we our record has been terrible, but, you know, waiting cannot help. There's nothing that waiting is going to do that will help us make sure that we are not just further exasperating this problem.
0: Okay, climate news?
2: Climate news. Climate news.
0: Huge dust and sandstorms have kicked up all over the Middle East this year as the climate there is becoming drier and hotter. More heat waves are gripping Europe this year, coming earlier in the year and happening more often. Major heat waves are hitting the Southwest and Western U.S. right now as over 25 major cities broke or tied all time temperature records on the 11th of June. And I mentioned recently that Utah has been considering pumping ocean water in from the coast to save the Great Salt Lake, which is already diminished by two-thirds. The climate crisis is a secondary factor to huge population growth and the economic value of agriculture, which are preventing the state from allowing more water to flow from three rivers into the lake. Uh, scientists are now warning that if the lake does dry up, 10 million migratory birds will be threatened. Poisonous dust clouds containing arsenic will waft over Salt Lake City, and other dangerous heavy metals will be exposed to the air as the local population is expected to continue rising. I heard something like 50% increase by like 2060 or something, but they might run out of water by 2040. So they're going to need to figure some stuff out.
2: I will admit that I I struggle a bit to add value in the parts of these roundups that are mostly about ensuring that we aren't losing sight of the slowly growing environmental destruction that we're surrounded by. And yet, I, I still think it's very important to not allow ourselves to get complacent about them or sort of allow them to drift into the background. Because for those of us who can let these stories sort of pass us by, you know, our day will come. And when extreme weather hits our doorstep, we can adapt and adapt and adapt, but without fundamental changes, you know, those adaptions will break. There, there was this article that I read a few years ago that stuck out to me, which focused on how what in one generation, we can sort of lose our historical memory of what normal is. And, and so you go from folks who remember, you know, buffalo herds that could pass for days to people who wouldn't even, to their children, not even be able to recognize one. And this unbelievable destruction becomes the norm. And I really worry that the same thing could happen with extreme weather. You know, how soon will children come to feel that heat waves or dust storms or lack of water is just the way it is and not something that we created or are allowing to get worse?
1: No, that was like... Beautiful and poetic and and melancholy. Um, Because, yeah, I think you're right. It's not going to take very long. Give it another few years and we'll just be like, yeah, people just die of heat in the summer. I don't know what you're talking about. It's normal. Um, But I did just want to sort of on on the heat wave note, um, I've been seeing. A lot of posts lately about a day of action that 350 is hosting specifically around what they're kind of classifying as like the anniversary of the heat dome from last year. So if this is something that's on your mind and this is something that you're finding like devastating and you want to draw attention to it and rally around it. Um on June 29th, 350 is hosting a day of action. They're calling it like a day of action to end climate delay. Like I said, specifically around the anniversary of the heat dome. So if that's something you want to get involved in, um, I feel like you can go over to oh, actually they have a they have a special website for it. It's called climatedelay.ca and you can register or sign up to host an event and um make sure that these issues are being talked about in um in our communities primarily as, as those of us who live in fairly wealthy communities in the global north, it's something we need to be talking about more and more about.
0: Uh, sustainable The sustainable energy think tank REN21 is reporting that the historic chance to shift to renewables through the catalyst of the COVID pandemic has now been lost. Executive R- Director Rana Adib said, quote, the energy regime is collapsing before our eyes and with it or the old energy regime is collapsing before our eyes and with it the global economy yet crisis response and climate goals must not be in conflict renewables are the most affordable and best solution to tackle energy price fluctuations but governments across the world continue to resort to fossil fuel subsidies to keep energy bills under control This growing gap between countries' ambition and action on the ground is alarming and sends a clear warning that the global energy transition is not happening. Ukraine has just signed a deal to start buying liquid natural gas and green hydrogen from Quebec, and a report from the Environmental Integrity Project finds that US companies have signed at least 19 deals since the start of the Russian war to ship out 24 million tons of liquid natural gas per year. Russian fossil fuel profits have meanwhile been soaring throughout the war despite sanctions. The UN Secretary General Antonio Guterres is saying that new fossil fuel exploration and production is delusional and will make everything worse, arguing, quote, had we invested massively in renewable energy in the past, we should not be so dramatically at the mercy of the instability of fossil fuel markets now. Experts in the United States are warning that another intense hurricane season is likely to happen this year, with the U.S. National Hurricane Center director Ken Graham telling the Associated Press, quote, from 2017 to 2021, more Category 4 and 5 hurricanes made landfall in the U.S. than from 1963 to 2016. The U.S. is likely to start using air and water drones to measure the intensity of storms as they approach. And a survey of people in Florida uh, recently found that 40% of respondents were probably going to avoid evacuating in in case of a major storm due to high gasoline prices. And Florida, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis has recently signed a law requiring a Resilience Office to build a plan to deal with rising sea levels and other climate risks but the state continues to embrace fossil fuels.
2: That last story really highlights the need for a climate justice lens when it comes to thinking about climate change. You know, The fact that high gas prices might mean that 40% of people in hurricane, in the way of hurricanes, which are expected to be intense again, are not gonna move. Like if you are that price sensitive, to gasoline prices, that you cannot evacuate your home because it's that dangerous for you because it's gonna be costing that much money, that is a complete failure on, from the state level, like from the, orga- the government level, it's a complete failure on any other transit. Like the idea that you also then can only drive too. like if 40% of people have to drive to evacuate and then can't afford to drive to evacuate because of gasoline prices, Like if you're the state of Florida and you don't have ways to evacuate your citizens, which you are gonna demand they do, like when these hurricanes come in, there are messages that you must evacuate. And yet you are not gonna give them any way to evacuate except use the fossil fuels that are causing the problem worse and they can't afford them. So they're gonna be stuck in the way. That is a colossal failure of the government and should be really the only thing you talk about until it's fixed. And yet this is Florida and, you know, Ron DeSantis is trying to become president and so very likely we'll continue to ignore it. But to you, Lauren.
1: No, I was just thinking hearing you talk about that. I was um, I was lucky enough to be hanging out with some international colleagues um, from the UK, specifically a couple of weeks back. And it was really interesting talking to them because um, something that they were finding was that with rising oil prices in the UK, the. Um, it was providing them a really good opportunity to sort of build a bit of uh like pushback against oil and gas companies because people were angry at oil and gas companies because gas prices were becoming so so painfully high and it was being reflected in like their heating bills not not only their their petrol as they call it over there costs um and i was feeling like in that moment i was feeling really jealous of those uk organizers because that kind of angst mm-hmm directed at oil and gas companies, despite wickedly high prices, just isn't something we experience here in North America, either in the States where people are, aren't able to evacuate or, or in Canada, it feels like no matter how high, um, gas prices get, no matter how much danger it poses to people, no matter how many roadblocks it might throw up in your life and in your way, we are at this point where we are so sort of um, ingrained and enmeshed in our petro state sort of mindset that as, as, as a general public, we are incapable of placing blame on these fossil fuel companies, no matter how, how high gas prices get. Um, so no, no real point to make there just, it was making me think of that conversation a few weeks back. Um, and then the other thing that I just wanted to touch on really quickly was, was this deal, um, that Ukraine signed to, to buy liquid natural gas and, and green hydrogen from Quebec. Um, and how that's something I think I want to dig into potentially next week, or even just, just on my own time, because, um, Quebec is a signatory to BOGA, which is the beyond oil and gas Alliance. And that was a big announcement that came out in, in the fall back at COP and um, it's even something that when I like did a quick Google and like I'm seeing industry sort of, um, industry sympathetic quote unquote like news websites or like like press websites coming up like there's there's even some confusion there too um, from these companies that are wondering where Symbio this this Quebecois company like where they're going to get this oil and gas from if Quebec recently passed this law outlawing all oil and natural gas production throughout the province. So I don't quite know where Symbio, this company, is going to get the gas to, to send out to, to Ukraine. Um, so yeah, confusing, disappointing, because I'm, I'm assuming it means it's, it's Quebec going back on its, on its pledges, but um, unclear.
2: What the, well, we will follow up, uh, and if folks have any extra links, please do send them our way. Uh, tweet at us, or send us our Contact Us page. And then lastly, before I guess we go uh, to more news, the other thing that I, I do want to talk about briefly is just, I mean, very how depressing it is that we have missed this window that's that exists uh, to get take real climate action, and especially given the ways in which fossil companies have used time and time again, disaster, like talking about disaster capitalism, you know, tech, you you look at Texas and the ways in which the fossil fuel, natural gas plants, there absolutely gouged their Texas citizens for thousands, hundreds, tens of thousands of dollars. When they were just trying to survive, uh, uh, you know, being frozen to death. You look at, there's an unbelievable story in Australia about the ways in which the Australian fossil fuel companies are basically refusing to sell their energy to the state at a reasonable price and therefore forcing basically the state's hand to then give them even more money which is leading to the state literally considering nationalizing them because they're at a loss of how to keep energy prices down and then you look at the oil and gas companies that are absolutely raking in cash due to the to the war in Ukraine time and time again these are oil and gas companies are making Money hand over fist entirely from disaster. And we felt like we did have this moment to embrace the fact that, you know, renewables could be part of our building back plan. And it really has not come to pass in most of the world. And I do think that, you know, when history is written about this time, I can't see how that is not one of the major themes of this moment uh, in regards to how much energy there was to make use of this time and how poorly the states have responded and how the financial markets have decided that they are you know, going to act as if this massive inflation that's, co- that, that's happening right now is caused by wages and therefore raising infl- interest rates, which will only send, you know, hurt more people instead of understanding that the ways it's being driven also by profits and stuff like that. I really do think that this will become, go back and go down as one of the bigger failures in like, you could say a hundred years, but what's, 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 I think terrifying about our time now is that it's not really just a hundred years. Anything we do now will have impact for tens and thousands of years because of what we're doing to the, you know, to the climate. And so there is a little bit of me, which is like, it's not just us now. It's the next hundred, two hundred years uh, until theoretically we can get this back, you know, this back down again.
1: I am, I am actively trying to practice mindfulness in my day to day life, and one of those practices is one of those things where it's like if you have, if you have a new thought or a new feeling, come, it's like you can think about it, hold on to it, identify it as a thought or a feeling, and then let it go. And I just literally had to do that, where it's like, ha ha ha, we're messing things up for tens of thousands of years. And just let that go <laughs> we can we can just identify that as a scary thought and let's not think about it let's <laughs> let's leave that for for future lauren to cry in bed about
0: well tens of thousands you know who's to say really who's to say at least
2: hundreds bare minimum hundreds i think probably thousands
0: if you're talking about uh seeking out you know the last grain of the limb of the, the tiniest anthropod is that a word anthropod in the smallest puddles in the tropical arthropod? regions, arthropod. I'll Google. You know, I mean, the the the, the ecosystems. You know, they're always changing, Stefan. They're always changing, and uh, sure, 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 we're having impacts for tens of thousands of years. But it's not as if like we're necessarily going to create some sort of dead planet.
2: No, I don't think it's a dead planet.
0: So at the beginning of the month, the U.S. federal appeals court upheld a terrorism charge and an eight-year prison sentence for climate activist jessica reznicek who vandalized construction sites for the dakota access pipeline in 2016 and 2017. noting that reznicek is a member of the catholic workers movement and participant in the indigenous led climate struggle natasha leonard writes for the intercept quote the appellate justice's decision to uphold her sentence callously dismissing the challenge of her terrorism enhancement doubles down on a chilling message those who take direct action against rapacious energy corporations can be treated as enemies of the state. Three major oil companies have decided to pull out of the Arctic National Wildlife Refuge in Alaska, where they had planned to, to drill, leaving only two companies left with drilling leases in the area who are too small and inexperienced to do any development on their own. So they were, they were supposed to do leases. Biden came in and said, maybe we won't do the leases But now the companies that have already had some other leases are like, we're probably not going to drill either. And uh, the Gwich'in Steering Committee, according to the Energy Mix, stated, quote, These exits clearly demonstrate that international companies recognize what we have known all along. Drilling in the Arctic refuge is not worth the economic risk and liability that results from developing on sacred lands without the consent of indigenous peoples. Democratic members of the U.S. House of Representatives, Raul Grijalva and Katie Porter, have requested documents from five PR companies and the American Petroleum Institute to determine the extent of their climate misinformation campaigns. Meanwhile, one of the biggest electric utility companies in the states, called Southern Company, which has relied heavily on coal and gas and is the third largest greenhouse gas emitter in the states, has been outed also as knowing about climate science since the 60s and launching a series of campaigns to discredit it and that first uh, mention those those two house members doing the probe were were partially influenced by the Greenpeace activist who spoke with it was it the shell guy or is it she- the Chevron guy who was like bragging about how they had managed to do these shadow campaigns against climate change the guy the Greenpeace activist it was last year I think was posing as a potential employee and doing an interview or something. And so that was partially catalyzed this new probe into the PR companies.
2: I will say that if you want to learn more about these PR companies, there is a very good podcast called Drilled. I think I mentioned the show previously, but one of their seasons is entirely about the ways in which PR companies are supporting oil and gas in their sort of efforts to slow down decarbonization. And they sort of do a deep dive into the the ways in which these companies are complicit really in the success of slowing down action by providing this kind of PR.
0: voted to ban the sale of new fossil fuel powered cars by 2035 and to reduce CO2 pollution from cars fifty five percent by 2030. I imagine that would involve a bunch of different measures. Um, engineers out of Cambridge are patenting what is believed to be the world's first emissions free cement recycling process, and this is this is fittable within industrial processes that are already in existence. So not too difficult to, to employ. Uh, a new study from the journal Energy Policy has found that wind farms in the U.S. have made local communities more prosperous. The authors write, quote, One, wind energy increases the size of the local economy and increases local incomes, but it does not stop population decline. Two, the size of these benefits... Uh, increase at an increasing rate with the amount of installed generating capacity per capita. And three, rural communities with multiple installations and a greater amount of wind energy capacity benefit the most economically from these installations. And finally, Canada. Canada's federal carbon offset market has been launched, with Stephen Guibault calling it a necessary part of Canada's plan and others calling it a shell game. The market allows companies to go the cheaper route of paying for other emissions reductions projects unrelated to their own operations instead of reducing their own emissions. And finally, Alberta Energy Minister Sonia Savage said recently that it would be an extreme act of aggression against the prairies if Ottawa were to impose a windfall tax on oil and gas companies.
2: Quickly, on the carbon offset markets we've obviously in the show for many times been very skeptical skeptical of carbon offset markets or carbon offsets more generally and I think this is definitely a time to continue that the one thing I will say about this particular initiative is it does seem at least right now that the offsets themselves will be generated by municipalities and governments and that that and that they will be on from very specific projects which, definitely decreases the chance that the offsets themselves are poor. Now, I will say that that does not mean that we shouldn't be doing everything all the time. Like, that's the funny thing about this. Like, this may be a reasonably better than average offset market, but what we should be doing is both capturing all the methane from the landfills, which is what the first carbon offset could be and also ensuring all these companies actually reduce their emissions. And so for the ways in which we can be like, oh, it's great that they're doing, that this is a reasonable market, the answer in emergency is to do everything. And so it's sort of like a half high five here of like, okay, you didn't make the worst thing, but also maybe you should still do all of the things instead of giving these companies another way out rather you know, than just actually requiring it. But I guess in the sense, the carbon tax still is allowing people to emit Missions and discharging them for it. So the whole thing is still basically just a price mechanism that's trying to push on people rather than truly entering emergency
1: mode. But to you, Lauren. Uh, the point I wanted to make was just on that very last headline about Sonia Savage saying that the windfall tax would be, I can't remember what, um, what crazy statement she made, but, but that it would be a bad thing. Um, because on the flip side, uh, the B.C. Greens are calling on the feds for a windfall tax on oil and gas, which is really cool. Um, they're going to they're going to um, like be focusing their ask um, during the premier's meeting in July, which is which is exciting and cool. So Sonny Savage can can shush. Because as much as she might not like a windfall tax, there are other people that do. And they're actively campaigning for it and pushing for it. And that includes folks at the at like the government level, which is great. Um, and we're in support of that. So, So that's something that we will endeavor to bring you more information on in the future as hopefully these windfall tax campaigns gain traction.
0: And I guess the Greens actually have some power in BC, don't they?
2: They have a few seats. They're no longer the balance of power, which they were in the previous election, but they remain to be an influence and easily could get back into the balance of power in the next election. I am here with Sam Anderson, the co-founder and CEO of CarbonGraph. Thanks so much for being here. Thank you so much for having me, Stefan. So so by way of introduction, what is CarbonGraph and and what do y'all do?
3: So CarbonGraph is a digital platform that businesses use to calculate the carbon footprint of their products and then share that carbon footprint with their stakeholders, which includes their customers. It includes their investors, it includes governments and other members of the community who want to understand how that business is performing environmentally. And the reason we exist is the world is finally starting to take action on climate change. I think we've all seen in our personal lives and in our professional lives over the last few years, a massive shift in terms of the commitments that governments are making, the commitments that companies are making, the number of products that are starting to be marketed as more sustainable options. And at this point, it's really exciting that over 50% of the Fortune 500, just to give an example, have committed to achieving carbon neutrality by 2050. The challenge though, is it's still very difficult to actually understand what the carbon footprint of an individual, of a company or of a product really is. And if we don't understand the carbon footprint of, for example, the things that we buy every day, how can we actually manage and control that carbon footprint? So Carbon Graph is software that companies use to map everything that goes into their product. So raw materials, shipping, electricity, fuel, even the packaging, how their products are used by customers, and then even whether the product is recycled or ends up in a landfill or is reused in some way. We take all that information and then we create an overall carbon footprint that can be used to show whether that product is more or less sustainable than alternatives and help consumers make purchasing decisions.
2: Cool, and so would you say your primary customers are the companies sort of designing these things or consumers?
3: So our customers are companies who have products and want to understand what the carbon footprint is because it's actually a very difficult process to calculate that number. And traditionally it's required companies to either hire consultants or to have specialized sustainability teams. And that's meant that only the largest companies in certain very visible sectors have actually invested in properly tracking their carbon footprint. Our goal with Carbon Graph is to make that possible for any scale of business. And so tracking the carbon footprint of your products should be just as easy as tracking your financial accounting.
2: Awesome. And so if we can dive into the weeds a little bit, I'd be curious to know how y'all go about This accounting, because this obviously means that you have to have some understanding of emissions for kind of every product ever, and not only the products themselves, but sort of the life cycle. And as you mentioned, you both go forward and backwards. So, can you give an example of how you'd go about tracking one particular product and how you actually come up to those numbers?
3: Sure, absolutely. So, why don't we take an example? So, let's say we're talking about a company that makes t shirts and those t-shirts contain cotton. So that's an example of an element of the t-shirt supply chain where the t-shirt brand is actually gonna need to look back into the history of their product and understand where that cotton came from, what sort of textile processes it underwent to produce the final textile that's being sewn into the t-shirt, where it came from in the world, what type of shipping distances were involved, And that's just one element of the supply chain because the T-shirt probably also has some printing on it with ink. There's probably also some packaging. It has to end up in a retail store. And so what a company has to do is figure out how to take all those different elements of their process and their supply chain and add them all up into a single number, which we measure as the carbon footprint in kilograms of CO2 equivalent. The approach we take is actually one that has been internationally accepted for many decades, and it's called life cycle analysis. And in particular, we implement the GHG protocol product standard. So we group different parts of a product's life cycle into different categories. So the raw materials, the production, the shipping, and even the use and end of life of the product. And this is a similar approach to what some listeners might be familiar with for companies. So companies will talk about their scope one, their scope two, and their scope three carbon footprints. And so that definition was also made by the same standards body GHG protocol, but it applies to organizations. And so we think about a scope one carbon footprint being direct emissions from an organization. So in the case of the t-shirt company, it might literally just be the gasoline that's burned in their vehicles as they drive around from their factory to their store. And then we talk about the scope two carbon footprint, which is their energy usage in the form of electricity. So all of the natural gas or coal or other um, energy sources that went into providing electricity for their operations. And then lastly, we talk about the scope three, which is their full value chain. So all the materials, all of the shipping, all of the customers and things like that, that happen outside of the property of the company in question. So we take all that data and we actually drill it down to a product level so that you can say, you know, a t-shirt from brand A actually has half the carbon footprint of a t-shirt from brand B. And so as a conscious consumer um, or as a government looking to incentivize low carbon products, I should prioritize brand A. And then if brand B wants to get their act together and lower their own carbon footprint, maybe next year I'll prioritize them. So by doing this type of analysis, we have the opportunity to make sustainability more visible and actually make it a selling point for products to be more sustainable.
2: So I'm curious how this could impact or how your work would play into business decisions of these particular companies. For example, say this mythical t-shirt company has cotton and their cotton turns out to be the highest emission way to get cotton. Who knows? Maybe they're shipping it around the world 16 times for some reason before it gets somewhere and that becomes a problem. Do you have like a catalog of other cotton suppliers? Are the ways that they could do supply cotton? Or would it be on them to sort of go out, look for some and bring a new one in, a new metric in or a new product in to be like, what would happen if we used this one instead of this?
3: Yeah, that's a great question. So our goal is not just to leave companies hanging with a carbon footprint and no idea what to do with it. So we do help them identify what parts of their process are responsible for. For the most emissions and then what alternatives they have to reduce that and it's actually really important for even a company who does have a really large carbon footprint to do this work because they need to understand where they stand today and as consumer preferences shift towards more and more sustainable products and as government regulation increases that business is going to need to start investing in lowering their carbon footprint so the first step is understanding the reality and, and that's what we help them do But specifically when it comes to individual suppliers, we do take an approach of saying, here are alternative suppliers that you could use and here's how much carbon you could avoid with X cost." So we try to map it out in terms of, if you invest this much, you can lower your carbon footprint by that much, uh, which is an important way for businesses to think about their investments this way.
2: Right. Of course that makes sense. And so I'm curious, this is a ton of work to build out these databases of carbon and to keep them updated and to ensure that you're always sort of staying on top of this. And so in your process of doing this, has anything stood out to you?
3: Yeah, absolutely. I think there's a ton of things that surprise us as we work with companies in new industries or in different parts of the world. One simple fact is I think most companies don't have a good idea of just how much their shipping of products impacts carbon footprint. So we've worked with some companies, for example, who have ultra sustainable processes and who really limit the overall emissions throughout their supply chain, but they ship their product to end customers in an airplane. And that shipping leg actually could be responsible for 50% or more of the overall carbon footprint of their product. And often it actually doesn't cost the company much more to switch to surface shipping or to stockpile more of their products so that they don't need to do last minute air freight. So it's one area where we've actually seen companies, once they look at the carbon footprint of the different options they have on the table, decide to choose the more sustainable one because they didn't actually realize just how much GHGs they could save for a relatively minimal cost or disruption to the way they currently do things. Another one is just understanding that some products can have a massive carbon footprint per unit of weight. And one that people are typically familiar with is steak, that, you know, steaks have a very large carbon footprint, and it's probably one of the most polluting things that is in most of our weekly diets. However, there's massive variation within individual industries. So some beef producers, for example, are able to produce a steak one-tenth the carbon footprint of others. And that's not really something that gets talked about in marketing, in grocery stores, where the consumers are really aware of. You know, if you like Red meat, and you want to take responsibility for your carbon footprint, choosing where you buy your meat can have a massive impact. It's not just a matter of going from I eat steak to I'm a vegetarian. There's lots of options in between as well.
2: And so, projecting out into the future a little bit, if everything goes right for Carbon Graph, and let's say also the world, let's just say the world and your company succeed in tackling climate change in the next 10 years, like we really see a shift that's picked up and going, what is Carbon Graph doing in like 2035? And how does it sort of interplay within that new world?
3: It's a great question. I think, firstly, if we're going to be successful in tackling climate change as a global society, then we are going to need to get international cooperation right. And so that means that conflicts like the present conflict in Ukraine simply are incompatible with that happy 2035, where we are all working together and addressing this common issue of, of global warming. But assuming we do get there, and I believe we will, the way Carbon Graph would like to play a role is by allowing negative and positive externalities of all types. So environmental impacts of products, social impacts of products, allowing those to be measured transparently. Every time a company creates a product, or sells it to an individual or another company and basically making it just as easy for individuals to look up a carbon footprint or the water footprint or the labor conditions in which a product was made as it is for them to figure out the price ultimately i believe that our system of global market capitalism has potential to do good and has done lots of good in certain areas in the past but if we want to evolve that system for the 21st century we really need to be able to put a price on the various positive and negative impacts that private sector activities have on the world. So there should be a price on carbon. There should be a price on water. There should be a price on poor labor conditions and carbon graph is one part of the system that will help to measure and manage those positive and negative impacts.
2: Is there anything that you're working on you know, right now that, that you're excited about?
3: Absolutely. We are getting into the third iteration of our software now. So we have a really cool visual interface that businesses can use to actually map out and see their full supply chain and see where all the emissions sit. And we're taking that now to sort of its next generation where you're going to be able to see individual facilities, individual suppliers, individual processes that take place in those facilities and really have A model that you can share around your whole organization with stakeholders of how your product is made and how you're managing its environmental impact we're also starting to work with companies in different sectors so we started out primarily working with fashion and food companies now we're also working with packaging companies with automotive companies and with mining companies so we're really getting to explore a whole bunch of different industries And actually seeing where they connect into each other, because, you know, food that comes in a can contains metal in its packaging. And that comes from a mining company and mining companies produce products, but they also consume a lot of products like energy and that connects them back to the electricity sector, connects them back to the oil and gas sector. So really when it comes to carbon, every industry in the world is connected. And as we start to work with different companies in different industries, we're sort of building that that database and that network of information to help manage sustainability across the whole ecosystem.
2: That's interesting. It would make sense to me, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, that as you move into other industries, that knowledge can then get plugged into your improvements on the carbon counting for things that are plugged in there. Cause like one of the experiences that I've had in regards to trying to understand carbon emissions is that it's always changing. If you create a spreadsheet of carbon emissions per product, for example, that can be true to this year. It might be a bit true next year, but a significant shift by year three in, in something that's feeding into them means that it it no longer accurate. And so I presume you must always be shifting and updating the system to, to correctly identify what the emissions are for each individual thing as you move forward.
3: Absolutely. So the way carbon footprinting is generally done today is sustainability experts will look up emissions factors, which are agreed upon average values for the amount of greenhouse gases that get emitted when a certain thing is produced. So for example, the global average emissions factor for producing aluminum sits at around six kilograms of carbon dioxide equivalent per kilogram of aluminum that's produced. And while that information is really useful and important to have the problem with it is that if everybody's using a figure of six kilograms, of CO2 per kilogram of aluminum, then there's no incentive for those aluminum producers who are actually below the average to have their products more widely used. Because everybody's using the same average value. So one of the features of carbon graph that we're so excited about is the fact that one company can build a digital model of their carbon footprint connected to their customers' products and those customers' products will have carbon footprints that now update live based on what's happening in their supply chain. But crucially, we allow the companies to keep control of their own proprietary information. No business owner wants to share the identity of their suppliers with their customers, lest they potentially lose out on those suppliers selling directly to their customers, but that's a major obstacle to transparency for sustainability among other issues. And so we allow for the critical information, like how much CO2 was emitted in every step of the supply chain to flow back and forth between different companies, but allow them to keep proprietary information proprietary, which is a really important step from where the world is today.
2: Yeah, That's interesting. I hadn't hadn't thought about the proprietary information, but of course that would be you know huge in these types of ways so a bit of a switch off into a different kind of question more personal i guess for you specifically which is do you experience climate anxiety and if so how do you manage it
3: yeah absolutely i experience a ton of climate anxiety i think um for me i really woke up to climate change back in 2018 when the united nations put out their report on 1.5 degrees of warming and what the impact of 1.5 degrees versus two degrees of warming from where we are today will have on the world. And I don't know why that's when the penny dropped. Obviously, we've been hearing our whole lives pretty much about the risk of climate change, but that caused me to refocus my career, start reading widely on the state of the atmosphere, on the state of industrial carbon emissions, and start thinking about how to work on the problem. Fast forward a few years, now that I work in the space every day, I actually find it really hard to read you know, general newspaper articles on climate change or political platforms on climate change, because to a certain extent to work in the space, you need to bury a little bit of that anxiety that you have over. You can't go into work every day thinking, will we hit net zero by 2050 or will we not in a sort of existential way? And, but that's something that I think anybody working in sustainability needs to Be self-conscious about how they're managing that stress, how they're allowing that anxiety to drive them forward and remind them as to, you know, why they're actually working on this problem. But also not to let it overwhelm you and to understand that, you know, if you as an individual can do your best, that is really all that you're able to do. And so beyond that, you just need to have trust and hope that others will do the same and that we'll get
2: there. Wonderful sentiment. So if folks have heard, you know, this interview and they now want to learn more about Carbon Graph or get connected to you, how can they do that?
3: So they can go to our website. We are carbongraph.io. And you can also email us at hello at carbongraph.io or find us on LinkedIn or Instagram. We are always happy to talk to people who just want to know more about climate change or measuring carbon footprints. And then, of course, happy to talk to people who are looking to actually measure the carbon footprint. Of their products or looking for that type of data about the things that they buy.
2: Awesome. And so we'll give you a, a last word for everyone in just a second. But before I do, thank you so much, Sam Anderson, the co founder and CEO of Carbon Graph. Really appreciate you being here. And yeah, any last thoughts?
3: Yeah, thank you, Stefan. Really appreciate having the opportunity to talk about this issue in depth. You know, the, I think the number one thing that I'd want people to understand when it comes to carbon footprint is. We as individuals really do have control over where the world is going. It might seem like turning your lights off in your house extra diligently or making sure that you recycle well is such a small drop in the bucket, but you also have control over what you buy. And we spend hundreds of thousands or millions of dollars in our lifetime buying products, and you can choose how to invest that money. So by looking for more sustainable products, food, energy, furniture, clothing, everything, you can actually have a massive impact. But the number one thing, and I would be remiss if I didn't bring this up, is the number one thing you can do is really to vote consciously at a municipal, provincial, federal level or in whatever jurisdiction you live because our governments really do have the biggest control over how we're addressing climate change. <laughs>